Welcome, friends, to uh, another edition of the podcast. Thank you for listening. And I was thinking I this week and probably next week, we will finish up the scene in the garden where we've been for quite some time. And we're going to change the venue and go over to the New Testament to the Gospel of John, where Jesus has back-to-back interviews with two different people. And the uh, contrast in those interviews is striking, and I think it speaks to the point we're trying to make in this podcast. First one, he interviews is Nicodemus, who's the religious-slash-political leader of his day. He comes to Jesus in the night, and he walks away in the night scratching his head. Excuse me. And the second interview right after that is with a Samaritan down and out woman who basically no one wants anything to do with. And she comes in the height of the day and she runs away telling everybody and brings the whole town back to Jesus. And I think that's so fitting uh, and a picture typical of how the gospel message goes out that sometimes the people that you think the religious people of Jesus' day didn't accept it, no more so than some of them do today. I'm talking about his message. And yet the down and out, the whosoever wills of the world, they're the ones that respond. But anyway, continuing on here in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve have eaten free. They're hiding out in their fear and their shame. And God has called out to them. It says, Adam, where are you? And I want to hear I want to focus on the response today of Adam and then how God what God does next after Adam responds to him all of God and by the way that was a call that Adam was used to Adam and Eve used to commune with God on a regular basis so this was not a calling that would have shocked him but God is reaching out and calling out to Adam and basically saying you know where are you and Adam says to him I heard your voice in the garden the voice that once thrilled me. And what does he say? I was afraid because I was naked. So the voice that once thrilled him now makes him afraid. And why does it make him afraid? Because he's naked. He's full of shame. And then he says, and I hid myself. Well, there's a triumphant. I fear, shame, and hiding out. The response of Adam to God's call I mean, how long would have Adam hid out from God? Would he have taken the first step back to fellowship, do you think? You know, theologians debate this stuff, and it's an ongoing debate. You get a picture of God reaching out. Is our salvation solely the work of God? Or does man play a key role in it? Do we choose God, or does God choose us? And that's the kind of debate that we've had through the centuries, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man. And I think, I think sometimes we get into that debate and all we do is debate because maybe the answer to that is above all of our pay grades. But in any event, I want to focus just on what happened here. I think the Apostle Paul, he wrote uh, a letter to the church at Ephesus at his time frame, and I think he shed some light on this. He tells them, this is in Ephesians, the second chapter in the first few verses, He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you you used to live when you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who now works in all those who reject God. He said, all of us lived among them at one time. We gratified the cravings of our flesh and we followed its desires and its thought. 
And he says, we were all deserving of wrath. And then he goes on to say, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he comes and makes us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And he said, is it is by grace that you've been saved. So when he's writing that, Paul is likening our standing before God as a dead person with no possible means to make any move towards God because the last I checked, dead people don't have a whole lot of movement. And he says that sinful nature that we had made us children of wrath, living to fulfill the lust of our flesh. Not a pretty picture. But the good news is he says it's only by the grace of God excuse me, rich in mercy and great in love, that he draws us out of our death sentence and he gives us new life through redemption in Christ. Personally, I think dead in their sin, Adam and Eve would have continued to hide out in fear and shame, but God makes the first move. He did it with Adam in the garden and through the centuries, God has called out to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses. His final calling to all of us was through Christ our King. You see, Jesus came not only to save, but he comes to seek and save. He seeks out and brings salvation to everyone who's hiding out in their fear and their shame. And frankly, that's all of us. Left to ourselves, would be on the outside looking in. As humbling as that is, as much as it pricks our pride sometimes, God alone gets all the glory for reaching out and redeeming us. Now, does our faith play a role? Yes, we have to respond to God. However, even the faith that says yes to Jesus is actually a God-given gift. The scripture says he's both the author and the finisher of our faith. He moves upon our heart and he woos us by his spirit. And yes, we make our choice for Christ. But I liken it to be like a, a, a woozer and he loves her. And then he asks her to marry him. Does she have to respond? Yes, but she's responding yes because she's already had that drawing. She's already had that love expressed to her and she wants to willingly live with this person for the rest of her life. And so personally, I think we choose Jesus. Why? Because he first chose us. And that's that's marvelous. And I ain't going to sit here trying to figure all that out. I am going to relax in it, enjoy in it. And he came for everyone. He came for the whosoever wills of the world. So we look at Adam in this picture, and he's feeling rejected, and he's hiding out in his fear and shame. And he has no clue how God's going to react to his rebellion. He is more inclined to believe that God would come and deliver his promised death sentence than he is of God offering any hope of forgiveness. You see, like everybody stuck in their sin, Adam is more fearful of the wrath of God than he is aware of the love of God. And the serpent through the centuries has happily exploited that point of view. And guys, that's what religion does to us. The religious lie will keep us so afraid of God. It traps us in the fear, the shame, the anger, the blame, the control, all that kind of stuff. Now, is God a just God that will execute judgment? Yeah, that's one side of him. He is loving, forbearing, and forgiving God. And the scripture said he's not willing that anyone should perish. That verse says he's patient, long-suffering, 
not willing that any should perish. So his justice on his one side and his mercy on the other side, how do we satisfy that? On the cross of Jesus. That's where all of both God's justice and his mercy was satisfied, on the cross. He bore our sin, he bore our shame, and he offered us forgiveness and freedom in exchange. What a deal. When we look at the response of God to Adam, I look at this more as a call to conviction, not to condemnation. He reaches out to him to offer repentance, not rejection. Adam's already in his rejected state, and God's reaching out to him. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me take a drink of water. I know this isn't a professional to do this, but I don't edit this. I kind of do this live. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, I apologize for that, but this is more of a conversation we're having anyway. So here's what God goes on to say to Adam. He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you that you should not eat? It's a good question. Who told you you were naked? Who filled you full of shame? And by the way, who's, who's speaking to us today and telling us we're full of shame, telling us we're naked? Because it ain't Jesus. If we're hearing that voice, that's the wrong voice. But God is reaching out to Adam and he's giving him an opportunity here. Acknowledge your sins. Step up to the plate and fess up to your fault. That's the first step necessary for all of us on our road to redemption. Yet we can all admit the times of fear and shame have stood in the way of us admitting our fault. Adam's response is indicative how all of our insecurities and uncertainties can get the best of us. So full of those fears and insecurities, what does Adam say to God when God asks him this question? Have you eaten from the tree? And the man said, oh, it's the woman you gave to me. She gave me of the tree, and that's why I ate it. Okay, then, cowering in fear, he makes some kind of a half-hearted confession. But what he just said there is more of a con job than it is acknowledgement of any responsibility for wrong behavior. Adam's willing to admit, I ate from the tree, yet he doesn't want to be accountable for his actions. So what does he do? He's going to cover up his culpability, lessen his liability. He serves up Eve. She's the responsible party to the rebellion. That's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh that he was so excited about one time. Now he's throwing her under the bus. And so begins the blame game. And he takes it even a step further. It's not just the woman. God, it's the woman you gave me. So you got to share some of the blame for wishing this woman on me. God, men have been trying to do that for years, haven't they? So he blames Eve, and then he blames God. He admits, oh yeah, I ate from the tree. Not my fault. See, Adam's looking for a legal loophole here. But if you're going to look for a loophole, it's probably not a good practice to implicate the judge. He's got the audacity to blame God. He's the first one to play the victim card. And have we followed suit in that over the years? I think so. But look at how the family tree of good and evil is growing. Initially full of fear and shame, 
And now we blossom into anger and blame. And the end result is cover up and control. And then we fertilize it all with a false sense of pride as we try to pretend we're all fine. And I've said before, sin's the great equalizer that puts us all in the same guilty position for before God. Why don't we just get over it? There isn't any of us any better than the other one. Behaviors might be a little different. Some are better than others. But all of us at our root, we all come from the Adamic nature. None of us is different. We have all failed God in different ways, and we're all in need of the same forgiveness. And yes, sin itself, that can be shameful, but the real shame is not admitting our accountability. Full disclosure is the first step towards enjoying God's favor. When we bottle things up and we don't want to openly confess, then we're going to be like Adam. Hiding out fear, shame, trying to cover up. And hiding from God, that approach to life, boy, that is one laborious effort. Keep on covering my shame, conceal my blame, control my anger. That's a heavy load. And Jesus, he offers a solution for that kind of a sorry lifestyle. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. What will I give you? Rest. Rest for your soul. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn about me. I'm meek, I'm lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden's light. And he's using a, he's speaking there metaphorically as something they would understand because they had the oxen pulling the cart when they worked, but the lead ox did all the work. All the pressure was on the lead ox, and that's what he's telling them here. All the pressure's on me. I'm doing the work. Your yoke is going to be easy. Your yoke is going to be light. Because I took all the responsibility on myself when I went to the cross. To admit to our failed state, we will lighten our load and liberate our souls. But not to step to the plate, to be angry. You know, anger is a powerful emotion and the enemy exploits it to keep people in the bondage of their fallen nature. There are so many people that have unresolved anger in their lives. And we cannot allow ourselves to be held captive by the cancer of unresolved anger because it will eat away at you and the person you're angry at doesn't even give a flip. When anger is hidden away in the recesses of our soul, it slowly but surely will sicken our body and harden our heart. And don't get me wrong, there's people that have legitimate reasons for their anger. Sadly, there are too many people that have been victimized and abused by others. And I think we've talked about this in one of the other podcasts. They face the most difficult of decisions. They either live out of the heavy yoke of anger and blame or release forgiveness and receive the lightness and liberty of a new life lived out of love. That's not an easy task when your emotions are telling you otherwise. Yet forgiveness of that magnitude, it's more of a decision than it is an emotion. It's like Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. 
And through the tender care of our Lord, our emotions can be healed. He'll chip away at the wall around our heart. He'll open up our souls to the wonder of his love and his care for us. Okay, so now Adam has has had his say in responding to Adam's indictment of Eve. God's now going to turn to the woman to get her take on the matter. Well, this should be good. And so he says to the woman, similar to what he said to Adam, what is this that you have done? Now, what does the serpent say? Well, I'm sorry, what does the woman say? Adam blamed the woman. The woman's going to blame the serpent. She said, the serpent beguiled me, and that's why I ate, because of that serpent. And by the way, you created that serpent. Hmm. Eve kind of followed Adam's lead. She acknowledged she ate. But again, I don't want to be fully accountable. She's going to play the blame game, just like he did. How many people in life play the blame game? She's doing the Flip Wilson thing. The devil made me do it. But, you know, to her credit, unlike Adam, she didn't leave her man hanging out to dry. She stood by her man. But, like Adam, she let a half-truth stand in the way of full disclosure. Yes, the serpent beguiled you, but I think it was in your power to say no. I think God gave you authority over the serpent. But her half-truth, that's going to match up with that fig leaf bikini as a cover-up. So God now realizes, I'm not really going to get a full guilty plea from these two. So I guess I'm going to have to render judgment. Adam and Eve have basically thrown themselves in the mercy of the court. And God is going to act as the judge and the jury. But rich in his grace and mercy, God's going to take in a couple of factors that will work in their favor. First, they didn't plead the Fifth Amendment. Although vague, they were evasive. They did at least answer to the court. They were deficient on accepting blame. Nevertheless, they did honor God's right to act as the judge. And God is also aware of something else. Their insurrection is not some independent act by Adam and Eve alone. A third party was involved in this. A third party instigated the plan and incited the rebellion. Now, this doesn't render them guiltless, but it does give some reason for their actions. And by the way, that third party, as we've said before, wasn't really the serpent. It was the one behind the serpent. And it's the same way today. There's always that third party behind the scene instigating and manipulating. I mean, we look today at, in America, we, we debate this whole thing on the uh, political system. And we look at presidents, senators, congressmen, Supreme Court justices, and we say that's where the power is. Not really. Those are the front men. The power is held by the ones behind the scene just like Satan was behind the scene with the serpent. They manipulate. They put certain people in power and they manipulate for their own agenda. And we fall for the trap. It's 
See, God clearly sees the enemy's conspiracy here. And yes, you can use that word, conspiracy, because that's exactly what it was. And so God's sentence, as he executes his judgment, it's going to reflect that. He doesn't even begin judgment with Adam and Eve. He goes right to the culprit who behind the scenes orchestrated the whole coup in the first place. The Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. The first time we've heard that, God cursed. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Now, there's a pretty picture of those who want to sell out to Satan. Crawling on your bellies and eating dust. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He's going to strike your heel, but you will crush his head. The serpent was a mere instrument of the devil's duplicity. God might be speaking to the servant, serpent, but only as a stand-in for Satan himself. God seems so difficult to discern, so often we bring judgment against those who carry out the evil, but never indict those who incite the evil. They get off scot-free. Not in God's eyes. Not on his watch. Thankfully, our God's omniscient. And true judgment is best left in the hands of the one who is all-knowing. The serpent is reduced to the lowest of creatures, groveling along the ground with dirt as his just dessert. And the woman who he beguiled as his friend, supposedly, will now be his enemy. And they are going to battle as rivals throughout the course of history. And there comes a time of conquest when the seed of the woman, Jesus, crushes the serpent's head. Through the cross and his subsequent resurrection, Jesus defeated Satan's power to deceive and destroy his redeemed disciples. He can never do it. He can't get at us. In Christ, we have power over him. Satan was once the highest of God's creation, and now he's descended to the depths of hell to pine in his guilt. And unlike Adam and Eve, Satan's rebellion was an independent act. There was nobody incited that but him, and as such, no offer has ever been made of repentance or redemption for him. And for those who are, and I know it's hard to imagine that there are those that would sell out to him, Willingly reject Christ? That's who hell is for, those who willingly reject God and deliberately and diligently worship the serpent. With satanic pride and arrogance against God, they refuse to acknowledge God as their judge, and so they receive their just reward. God will one day come and judge evil and Thankfully for God's people, he's not appointed us to his wrath. Finished with the serpent sentence, God's gavel of justice is now going to fall on Eve. What does he tell her? And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. 
It's going to be in sorrow that you bring forth children, but still your desire will be to your husband, and he shall rule over thee. Eve's sin is going to leave her in a sorrowful state, just like Adam. And in essence, because she's the first one to actually conceive sin, her sorrow is now associated with future conception. Through pain and suffering, she's going to bring forth children. And in spite of her sorrow, she'd still desire her husband as her friend, lover, and father of her offspring. Childbearing would be a burden, but she would one day know the joy of bringing forth the seed that would defeat the serpent that deceived her. And Jesus referenced this when he was uh, speaking to his apostles prior to his crucifixion. Jesus, this is in uh, John, the 16th chapter. Jesus says, when a woman gives birth, she has pain because her time has come. But when her body is, when a baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that the child's brought into the world. And he says, so it will be with you. Now's your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You see, Eve's trial through the birth process prefigured the pain suffered by Christ to bring forth his church. He is the promised seed that reversed the curse. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the pain of the cross, the pain to give birth to his church. At the climax of his crucifixion, what did they do? They pierced his side with the sword of a Roman centurion and his water broke. And his blood flowed out. And it gave newness of life to a covenant people cleansed of their sin and freed from the curse. The promise that was made in the garden to Eve that day reached its fulfillment as the fruit of her womb brought forth final victory over the serpent. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the final piece of God's judgment against Eve has proven to be the, I guess, seemingly the most difficult to digest when he says her husband will rule over her. But this command, like so many others in scriptures, continues to be misconstrued and mishandled all through the ages. Prior to them ever eating this forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve walked freely through life, side by side, in subjection only to God. That was the only subjection they had, was to God. Although Adam was created first, and Eve was to be his helpmate, they didn't have any consciousness of any ruler in the relationship. None. Absent the time when they sinned, they willingly served each other with the diversity of personality that made their relationship so desirable. But now they've sinned, and they were a world cursed with sin that balance, as they knew it, was destroyed. With their loss of dominion because of their sin, both of them now are going to be subject to the vagaries of a sin-ravaged world. Eve would be subject to her husband and Adam would be subject to the unpredictable nature of the earth he once ruled. It's now going to bring forth, it's cursed. It's now going to bring forth thorns and thistles and he's going to have to work it when before he really wasn't working. He didn't even know what work was. Yes, the consequences of this sin were severe. And nevertheless, this subjection that they were going through 
Because of the world they were living in, it was going to be necessary for their protection, provision, and nurturing. They would both need to be fruitful in the challenges they now now faced. Eve is going to look to her husband as her leader and lover who would provide for her, give her needed a sense of safety and security in an unstable world, and Adam's going to need the affection and encouragement of Eve in order to work the cursed earth. They're going to need each other, and frankly, they're going to be subject to each other, and they're both going to be subject to God. She's going to protect Adam's heart, nurture his soul with such a purpose and passion that he desperately needs. They would serve each other willingly. Their subjection would be willingly. And that's how subjection, as authored by God, is. It's willing and it's loving. It's not forced. And like all truth, the serpent has twisted this issue of subjection. Why? To serve his own evil agenda. So look what we've had through history, the abuse of women, the stain of slavery, the sin of social injustice. They're all the consequences of those who follow the enemy's lie concerning subjection. Man always wants to have other people in subjection to him. It's been going on since creation, well, since the fall of man. So what is subjection now? It's become synonymous with some kind of forced service to some unwanted overlord. That's not God's idea of subjection. Whenever fear, intimidation, or coercion are used in the name of subjection, that's the serpent at work. I think the greatest example of true subjection was Christ. And Apostle Paul writes about this in a, in a letter he writes to a church at uh, Philippi. He says, In your relationships with one another had the same mindset as Jesus. He said he was in the very nature of God, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to be to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He subjected himself. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, and now God's highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above the, every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Father, the King of Kings came down from heaven in the form of a servant. He put himself in subjection. Why? To release all mankind from their subjection to sin. We're set free. And he set us free from those who serve sin and want to brutally rule over others. Christ reigned in righteousness with compassion and forgiveness for whosoever wanted it, he never forced subjection. Jesus would simply call out to others. He never went behind them and herded them. He was the good shepherd who went before them and he called out to them and those who would willingly and lovingly follow his lead. He was a model of humble leadership and mutual subjection that everybody should exemplify. And I'll say it again, any subjection which is not willing and loving obedience, 
That's not of our Lord. Subjection in marriage is a mirror of that of Christ and his bride. In Ephesians, it says, submit yourselves one to the other, husbands and wives. Submit yourselves one to the other in the fear of God. Wife, submit yourself to your husband, your own husbands, it says. And that's that word isn't in there for any other reason. Own husbands is speaking like, woman, listen and honor your own man. You got issues in life. You don't go around asking a whole lot of other men. You discuss it with your own man. He says the husband's the head of the life, uh, head of the wife only, as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let the wives be subject to their husbands. And then he says, but husbands, you got to love your wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, if a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Gee, I think any woman would follow that lead. I don't think that's complicated. I don't think that's some some great big laborious thing that we have to debate and get all upset about. It also puts some onus on us as, as men because if we want women to look to us as leaders, we've got to step up and lead. We have to step up in love as Christ loved the church. And that's how you lead. You don't lead with any, you don't lead with any kind of forced subjection. You lead in love. Scripture counsels us to submit to one another with respective roles that were God ordained from the garden. Never was the intent to belittle anyone rather than to benefit everyone. Husband takes the lead by loving his wife as Jesus loves his bride. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've been married for 52, God, did I say 52? I think it might be 53 now, but anyway, it's close to that. This business of, of, uh, when two people come together, of course, you you had patterns in your own life. The other party had patterns in their own life. And this business of submitting sometimes, when somebody somebody presses you in, in some area of your life and different things, but... If we're in love with each other, we love each other right through our faults. And we learn as, as we go along that this whole business of, subject, of subjection is just us loving each other and subjecting ourselves to each other. I mean, I can tell you after 50 plus years, I mean, Kathy's become me and I've become her and it drives us both crazy, but nevertheless, we love each other. Our love has grown. This is what, uh, this is in uh, the Apostle Peter writing this. He says to husbands, he says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge and give honor to your wife as unto the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. And when he says weaker vessels, he's not talking about in character. And when when Scripture talks about the 
women back in the in the New Covenant when Paul writes in Corinthians about women and, and, and he writes uh, people misconstrue sometimes what Paul was referring to back then when he talked about women uh, keep silent in the church this was all brand new to them you have to understand that women were liberated by Jesus no one liberated women like Jesus. You want to talk about a woman's liberation movement? That didn't start in the 1970s. Jesus came and did that. He raised and elevated women to a status that they did not have in society. And I think I may have mentioned this once before, but it probably bears repeating. Who was the first person to bring the gospel, the good news of the resurrection to the world? Mary, a woman. She brought it to the guys who were hanging out, hiding out. Who was the first one to bring the gospel to the Samaritans? Now, the Samaritans were, they didn't, that was the prejudice and the racism of Jesus' day, the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews did not like Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. They considered them half-breeds. And Jesus, one time, he's, he's going with his apostles. He's going to go to another place in Israel, and he, and the the way to do that would have been to go around Samaria because Jews and Samaritans didn't come in contact. But Jesus told them, no, we're going right through Samaria. And his apostles said, we can't do that. And he does. And who's he got a divine appointment with? A Samaritan woman. And who's the first one to take the gospel to the Samaritans? The woman at the well. When Jesus left there and he goes to another part of Israel, it's kind of on the Syrian border there, he meets a Syrophoenician woman. Not even Jewish. And she comes to Jesus because she's looking for her children. She said she's a mother. What's got compassion and care for her children? And she's saying, please do something for my child. And Jesus says, you know, he uses a metaphor here again. He says, we're not supposed to take the food and give it the dogs. Now, what he's talking about there is Jesus is, is, I mean, don't take that the wrong way. What he's saying is, I have come to bring the gospel to the Jewish folk, the Jew first, then the Gentile. And right now, that's exactly what he was doing. He was traveling all over Israel, bringing the gospel message to the Jewish people. But she says, don't the puppies even get some scraps, though? Wow, what a statement. And Jesus, full of love, compassion, he said, man, you're Ma'am, your grace, your faith is great. And he does exactly what she asks. So she's the first one to take it to the Gentiles. The woman was the first to the Jew. The woman was the first to the Samaritan. And the woman was the first to the Gentiles. So he liberates woman. But what happens when you get liberated sometimes? What Paul is referring to when he's talking in Corinthians and other spots is the needle can go too far the other way. At that culture, at that time frame, they would not be at all used to a woman speaking up over her man in any assembly, at any meeting. And he's basically saying, please don't do that because it's totally humiliating and embarrassing to your man. Now, is that the case today? No, it's not. That's a cultural thing going back there. Woman wearing hat was a cultural thing back then. It was a sign that the, that the man was the head of the house. I mean, it, we, we don't have that kind of a sign today. I guess the closest sign we probably have today, when you think of it, is a woman taking uh, women, when they get married, they take the man's name. 
I mean, not in every case, and I'm not trying to make a law out of that either. I'm just saying that that's kind of the symbolic thing we do today. Back then, they wore hats. What I'm trying to point out here is a lot of the stuff that he was talking about to women back then was a cultural thing. Cultures change over the years, some for the good, some for the bad, but they change over the years. Both husband and wife are going to rely on each other to overcome all the trials and tribulations life's got to offer. And subjection to each other serves us well in the world we're living in. With his physical strength, the husband's going to honor his wife when he's talking about the weaker vessel. And he's going to protect her from anyone or anything that would harm her. And men, I will tell you, the woman will protect your heart. She will see things coming at you that you don't see. Women see a lot of things men don't see. And they know how to rise up like a lioness. With her God-given intuitive nature, the wife will shield her husband's heart from being pierced by enemies he doesn't perceive. And the two are going to walk through life hand in hand with one firm grip on each other and the other firm grip on God and the grace of God. The enemy has purposely portrayed submission of a wife to her husband as some kind of indentured servitude designed to demean her. That's not the case. Why does he do that? He wants to place a wedge between the two. Do you think the enemy wants any happy marriages or... Prosperous families? Of course not. That's the strength of society. The strength of society isn't in Washington, D.C. It's in your kitchen, in your bedroom, in your living room. That's the strength of society, the family unit. The nation goes as the family unit goes. And the family unit will go insofar as how it loves and serves Jesus and loves and serves others. And when a husband fails to honor his wife and she resists the subjective role, the foundation of the family unit is shattered. Society suffers. Loving obedience one to the other is the life our Lord depicted. Satan's fallacious vision of subjection, it's resulted in a dearth of quality leadership in every facet of our society. Too many of today's supposed leaders rule with an entitlement expectation of subjection without earning the necessary respect of the people. That's in government, that's in finance, that's in media, that's in religion too. They seek to be served rather than reaching out and serving others. Jesus humbled himself and washed his apostles' feet. Today's leaders look to people to wait on them hand and foot. Rather than giving, they look for personal gain. And it's created one chaotic society of disrespect, disillusionment, and a constant undercurrent of rebellion. Anger, resentment, prejudice, hatred, saturate the land. All part of the serpent's plan to turn what God purposed for our good into some ploy to divide and destroy any attempt at meaningful and harmonious relationships, and we fall for it. Until all of us learn to submit to one another with the honor and respect that everyone everyone is due, then you can just expect an and anticipate a continuous onslaught of divisive and destructive 
behavior, and it'll all be our demise. The fact that we even have to talk about proper subjection is indicative of our failure to love one another as Christ commanded us to do. We are branches in Jesus' tree of love, and we can bear his love as we yield to his loving lordship over our lives. Whenever we turn a cheek, whenever we forgive a foe, or whenever we help the helpless, we tear down the kingdom of darkness that has corrupted our society, our marriages, and fractured our families. Subjection is the very character of Christ. Let's pray that we all willingly and lovingly follow his lead. Oh my gosh, I went over time today. I try to keep these to a certain time. God bless you, folks. I I love you and uh, try to see if I can get another one done in the next few days. And thank you also so much for those of you who do listen to this. I appreciate it. God bless.